My name is Phil Stinson. I'm joined today by my colleagues John Lederbach and Steve Brewer. John and I are on the faculty of the Criminal Justice Program at Bowling Green State University. Steve is on the faculty of Penn State in the Administration of Justice Department. We recently conducted a study on police officers who were arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol or drugs, so DUI cases involving police officers. DUI is obviously a societal problem. Thousands and thousands upon thousands of people die each year on crashes in the United States related to drunk driving. And so from that perspective, uh, research on drunk driving is important and DUIs. Our study focuses on a small slice of DUIs in that police officers themselves are the persons who are driving drunk. In those cases, although they're part of the larger DUI problem, are, are really special in some regards. Obviously, when police themselves get caught driving drunk, it threatens the legitimacy of efforts, police efforts to curb the problem societally. Um, there's also some anecdotal evidence to suggest that police departments might minimize or ignore drunk driving when it occurs within their own organizations. And so um, we can see some scandals locally. Um, some cases appear where officers drive drunk with some catastrophic consequences. So we were interested in looking at, at the problem systematically and empirically as part of our larger study on police crime. There's really no data. We, we were unable to uncover any studies, empirical studies, that are specifically focused on the problem of police, what we refer to as police DUIs. And so this, this data is really unique and exploratory in that regard. By way of a literature review, it's difficult because there are no existing studies specifically focused on police DUI. Um, in the paper, we talk about some of the factors that can seem to contribute to drinking among police. You know, the police culture has been described as a, as a drinking culture, and police have been found to drink more than um, what's the norm for the general population. Uh, a lot of researchers have come out with some reasons for this culture, stress related to the job. All of this is to suggest that, anecdotally at least, we see that police sometimes do drive drunk, and it's a big problem for police organizations. And so that was the justification for the study. We really wanted to fill a gap in the literature because there was no studies specifically focused on the phenomenon of police themselves driving drunk. In terms of the methodology and how we collected our data, we utilize the Google News search engine and we've set up almost 50 automated searches that are run daily using the Google Alerts email update service and we collect this data in real time so I collected data starting at the end of 2004 and collected the data over the next several years frankly we're still collecting data today some seven or eight years later the cases in this study on police DUIs were arrest cases where an officer was arrested during the years 2005 through 2010 and we have 782 cases involving officers who were arrested for DUI. In terms of the results of our DUI study, we identified and included in this research study 782 cases in which police officers had been arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol and or drugs. Most of them were or alcohol-related cases. So these cases involved 750 sworn officers who were employed by 511 non-federal, state and local law enforcement agencies located in 406 counties and independent cities across all 50 states and the District of Columbia. So literally, 
Every corner, every nook and cranny of the country is covered in this study. All the states, large departments, small departments. Interestingly, seven of the officers who were included in the study had multiple criminal cases arising out of a single DUI because they had more than one victim. So, for example, if a police officer was arrested for DUI and it was a DUI that involved a traffic accident with three deaths resulting, there are three victims, we treated that as three separate cases because, again, we're interested in the criminal case outcomes, among other things. So that's why there's a disparity in terms of the number of officers and there being 32 more cases, 750 officers, 782 cases here. So we also have 14 officers who were included in the data in this study who had been arrested for DUI on more than one occasion within our study years. So 2005 through 2010, we've got 14 police officers who've been arrested for DUI once, but then again, at least one other time, multiple times, uh, two or more times, and they're still police officers. That's why they're included in the study, because at the time of arrest, we only include cases where the officer was a employed sworn officer at the time of the arrest for which they were later arrested, they were a sworn law enforcement officer. So those are our criteria for including cases. So we have, of those 14 officers who were arrested more than once, 11 of the officers were arrested twice, including one officer who was arrested twice in the same day. And two officers were arrested three times. We actually have one officer in the study who was arrested four times for DUI. And at the time of his fourth arrest for DUI, within our study years, he was still a sworn law enforcement officer and not been uh, terminated or resigned at that point from his position. One of the most interesting areas in terms of our findings in this study were the incident events. You know, what was going on in this DUI case where an officer was arrested? It's interesting that most of the officers were off duty at the time they were stopped and arrested for DUI, but almost 5% of the cases involved an officer who was actually on duty, and other officers were driving police cars but weren't technically on duty because we have over 8% of the cases involved an officer who was stopped and ultimately arrested for DUI while they were driving a take-home police car. In other words, a cruiser that's assigned to them to drive back and forth to work so it's not parked at the police station. In some jurisdictions, they can use those for off-duty use and even personal use in some places. It's, it's a point of contention in a lot of departments, especially now with budget concerns where everybody is dealing with you know local and state governments where they just can't afford to keep huge fleets of vehicles around. We got 8% of these cases, over 8% of these cases, where an officer was arrested while they're driving a take-home police car, typically a marked police vehicle where the officer is off-duty but drunk driving the vehicle. And clearly, citizens have no way of knowing who's on duty and who's off-duty. All they know is it's a police car. And how strange is that? We've got a drunk driver driving a police car. And then we have a number of cases, 27 cases, so 3.5% of our cases involved officers who were driving a police vehicle, DUI, while they're outside their jurisdiction. And sometimes that happens when an officer is traveling to in-service training that maybe is at a regional police academy or at a university or college or at some facility that's in another part of the state away from 
their agency that they work for. They take a police vehicle with them. They go out to dinner after the training a few nights that week and have too much to drink and end up getting arrested by the local police or the state police or the sheriff in the jurisdiction where they're attending training or on the way back home from that. So that seems to be what's going on there, why we have officers arrested in police vehicles, but they're not even in their own jurisdiction. You've identified some unique cases and some troublesome cases. What were the cases, what were the most common factors that provided the context for these arrests? Well, the most interesting thing, I think, is that over half these cases involve police officers who were involved in DUI-related traffic accidents. There's something about these cases that led to the officer's arrest, and quite often time there's just some something strange that happened or something out of the ordinary. They get involved in traffic accidents, and they aren't typical traffic accidents in terms of what I think of quite often, because when we read the narratives over and over and over again, we kept seeing the same things that were popping up. Oftentimes, we have not only car accidents that result with a DUI officer, but we've got other people who are injured in those car accidents. About 24.4% of these cases, of all of our cases, involve a DUI-related traffic accident with injuries where somebody's actually hurt. And actually, over 5% of our cases involve DUI-related traffic accidents with fatalities. So that that's a serious problem here. We've got 5% of our cases involve DUIs where there's a fatality resulting from a DUI-related traffic accident. These accidents are really interesting. We, we sat down a year or so ago with one of our graduate assistants at the time to look at what factors can we pull out of this? What can we do qualitatively to try to figure out what's going on here with these cases? What is it about these car accident cases? And we found that we saw the same things over and over again. A lot of these cases involved officers who flipped their car, or maybe they slammed into another car, leading that car to flip over, or they rolled into a ditch or through a ditch and then flipped the car over. Oftentimes these cases involve running into something where they drove over a whole series of mailboxes and knocked them all down in a whole block or something like that. They drove into fire trucks. They drove into fire stations. They drove through the front door of a police station. These are weird things. So these are not typical car accidents, as I think of traffic accidents. There's something unique about these accidents. They Again, they flip their cars over. They drive into something. They do something that in some way seems to negate the ability to cover it up, to ignore it, to treat it in a less serious fashion. It's hard to deal with a situation where you've got a cop who's flipped over their car without writing up a report, without calling a tow truck. If you've driven your car while off duty into a fire truck, there's a lot of explaining that needs to be done. It's hard to deal with without there actually being an arrest. But we have some other things that are going on here that are really kind of odd. There are a number of incident-related events that really tell the story of what's going on in these cases, and there's five or six main ones that I'd like to briefly mention, then we'll talk about some of the others. Over half these cases, 416 cases, involve traffic accidents. So it's a DUI-related traffic accident resulting in the officer's arrest. Also, in a quarter of the cases, not only is there a traffic accident, but there's a traffic accident with injuries, a DUI-related traffic accident with injuries. And we see in about 20% of the cases... The police officer who's arrested refused the blood alcohol content test. They refused to take a breathalyzer test. And in many jurisdictions, the result of that at the minimum is that you're going to lose your driver's license administratively for a period of time, often six months or a year, depending on the jurisdiction, depending on the state. 
And we saw in over 10% of these cases, we've got a DUI-related traffic accident where the officer who was involved in the accident, well, DUI, fled the scene. These guys are actually fleeing the scene of traffic accidents. They're cops who ought to stick around and do the right thing, but over 10% of our cases involve an officer who's arrested for DUI after they're involved in a traffic accident and flee the scene. Again, almost 10% of our cases involve officers who were in possession of firearms while DUI. And John, I actually think that's a, a higher percentage. I think that many of these officers are carrying guns because in our other studies we've seen that, that off-duty cops typically carry guns. But what's interesting about this is that the fact that the officer was in possession of a firearm while DUI was actually mentioned in the news narratives, in the articles. And one of the reasons for that is in many of these cases, not only is the officer arrested for DUI, but they're actually arrested for a gun charge of being in possession of a firearm while intoxicated. And that's why we're seeing that written up in the narrative quite often. If you look at the table and take like the, the top five or six most common incident events in these cases, it can be summarized in a couple of ways. The first uh, couple, the traffic accident and the traffic accident with injuries, you can't ignore those cases. There needs to be a report, so there's going to be an arrest. With the refused BAC test, in a lot of states, you're going to lose your license and lose their ability to be patrol officers for a given length of time. And so that's going to have to be recognized by the agency. And then the cases that involve officers fleeing the scene or hit-and-run charges, those are simply just egregious cases that can't be ignored. And so I would say the, the top five or six categories really can be identified as things that are impossible for the police agency to look the other way. You mentioned the hit and runs. That was something I hadn't mentioned yet. Over 8% of our cases where an officer is arrested for DUI, they were involved in a hit and run. So a DUI-related traffic can't accident. can't ignore them. It's crazy. You can't ignore those. And so if you take, I mean, that's probably two-thirds of the cases involved, you know, one or more of those. Yeah. So, you know, in the big picture, we've got a lot of factors here that are interesting. But those five or six or seven factors that we just mentioned really seem to precipitate the arrest. Besides the main categories which you discussed, are, are there any unique events or shocking events that may not be large in frequency but would likely end up on the front page of a newspaper article? Well, I think as a starting point, that the fact that we've got about 10-11% 10, of the cases involved, officers fleeing the scene, we've got almost as many cases where an officer is charged as a hit and run. But there are other things that are really interesting here, we've got over 5% of the cases, the officers charged not only with DUI, but they're charged with resisting arrest. They're not cooperating with police officers. They're actually resisting arrest. We've got over 7% of the cases where the officers refuse to take field sobriety tests. They're not cooperating with the police officers. Frankly, what's going on there, in using John Van Manen's words, they're acting like assholes. They're being perceived as assholes by the officers who stopped them, which is giving the officers impetus to go forward and arrest them. They're not going to cut them any slack here. Is the rationale for their behavior maybe in that, those situations that since they're a police officer, they believe that they should not be treated as a normal citizen who would be involved in the DUI? We don't know. That's, I think that's, that's a conjecture one. Well, that's I don't know. John, you think it's conjecture, but here's the thing about it. When, when I was a police officer, it was clear to me at a young age that police officers extend a professional courtesy to other officers. And when you stop somebody who's drunk or has committed some traffic violation, you get them a ride home, you let them go, you ignore it, that kind of thing. It's anecdotal. It's anecdotal, but, you know, there I'm is not research. i it's not true. 
Well, there's research that would support it, though. If you go back to Rice's study, you know, the police and the public back in the late 60s, early 70s, he said that law enforcement is exempt from law enforcement. And I think that's that's largely true. And yeah, and if you take that, that further, you know, Donald Black talked about in the early 70s the behavior of law and, and treated law as something quantifiable, and that if you're close to somebody who could be arrested, you're less likely to arrest them. And that seems I to be true. I absolutely agree that that's a discussion point that, you know, I don't. We're not testing that, though. right? So your point is it's anecdotal in that we don't have hard I mean, data. Anecdotal's not a hard, not a bad word. It just means that we don't have systematic data for it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not true. That doesn't mean I don't think it's true. Yeah, and and, it, and in some in some areas of study, anecdotal knowledge is the only knowledge. And so I'm not saying discount that. I'm just. We have to take it with a grain of salt. No, I don't think you take it with a grain of salt because here's the thing. Well, okay. And the reason I think it's important, though, is because if we start with the assumption that generally cops don't arrest other cops, and that's especially true for for DUIs, that there's a longstanding tradition, that it's a cultural thing, a professional courtesy is extended. And if we take that as true, just an assumption, if you will, that that's the way it is in many places across the country, certainly historically, and it seems to be that way still in a lot of places, then what interests me here, what fascinates me about this study, is that all of these cases, the officer lost their exemption, if you will, from law enforcement, that they did something that led to their arrest above and beyond what typically would happen when they were caught driving drunk. And that's what's fascinating about this study. So there are some other event-related incidents that are probably worth talking about here. You know, something that's interesting is over 14% of the cases involving officer who was driving a police car when they were stopped and arrested for DUI, and almost 5% of the cases, they were actually on duty. Where they, We could tell they were on duty at the time. And in the other cases where they were driving a police car but weren't technically on duty, they were driving a take-home car. They were outside their jurisdiction driving a police car. But, you know, the public has an expectation when they see somebody in a police car that's a police officer, they assume that's somebody that can help them if they have an emergency and they don't distinguish between on-duty and off-duty. And certainly the public doesn't have an expectation that there's any chance at all that someone driving a marked police car is going to be drunk. I mean, it's just not on their radar as something that they're taking extra caution to avoid that car in front of us or behind us because we have an expectation that cop might be drunk. People just don't think that way. So there's something about these cases that make these cases different from typical drunk driving incidents involving police officers where I maintain they typically are not arrested for DUI. They're just given a pass. They get a get-out-of-jail-free card, if you will. They get a ride home. You know, something's done to facilitate them not being arrested. And with the traffic accident cases, we see some interesting things going on here. A lot of these cases involve some strange sort of event where they, the officer flipped their car or they, they slammed into another car, making that car flip over. We read over and over again narratives where we had DUI cases involving cops who were arrested where they flipped the car. I've never seen so many flipped cars in reading news articles and reading court records. So we have a number of cases that involve the officer driving in the wrong direction on a divided highway, which, as we know, is a very, very dangerous thing. We had an incident here last year, a very sad incident in Bowling Green, Ohio, where several of our students on their way to the Detroit airport for spring break were killed on Interstate 75 where they were hit by a wrong way driver. I don't know if she was drunk, but the, the elderly woman who was driving the wrong way she slammed, wasn't. 
She wasn't drunk? No, she was not drunk. No, she was sober at the time, and she had just got merged on the wrong lane and started heading directly into it and collided head-on. Well, she had driven for many miles. It's a mystery. Yeah. It's crazy. And we, we read these all the time. If you think about it, um, especially between Christmas and New Year's, there seems to be that accident happened in March, but at this time of year, Christmas, New Year's, there seems to be a heightened problem with that where people are drinking more often than they do. Maybe they're driving on roads they aren't familiar. They're out later than they are coming home from an office party. But we have in this study just too many cases that involve police officers driving in the wrong direction on a divided highway and getting into a serious accident. It's really bizarre that police officers would be driving on a highway. you think they'd be you know, really cognizant of that sort of thing. They know the exit ramps, the entrance ramps, things like that. We have a number of cases here with the DUI-related traffic accidents where the arrested officer denied he was driving. So not only do we have officers fleeing the scene, we have officers committing hit and runs, but we have officers who, when they get caught, absolutely denied that they were driving. We have a number of cases where after they're stopped for DUI, somehow in the context of that traffic stop, they brandish a firearm, which is crazy. Who brandishes a firearm when they're being stopped by the police? It's just really interesting stuff that's going on in these cases. We have a number of cases where the officer was involved in a DUI-related traffic accident while they're trying to flee and evade the police. They're trying to get away from the police. They think they can outrun, outsmart the police. And then we've got some interesting things, not only with the traffic accidents, but in the cases that the officers are off-duty where they're arrested for a DUI. A number of those cases, the officer tried to make an arrest themselves while they're off-duty uh, and drunk and drunk driving, where they're in police uniform, driving a car while DUI. Sometimes we've got cases where officers are actually intervening in existing disputes. They come across something where they decide, well, we're going we're gonna to stop the car and get out and take care of that fight, but the police officer's drunk, and it, it just escalates the whole situation. So those are some of the things we see in these cases that are really sort of interesting events related to the DUI incidents. I do want to make one brief comment about the drug-related DUI cases. Less than 5% of our arrest cases for DUI involve an officer who was arrested for driving under the influence of a drug. And in many of those cases, it involved prescription drugs, either a specific prescription drug or arrested for DUI under the suspicion of an unknown prescription drug. And I think that's something we want to investigate further. But I just mentioned that it's a small number of the cases, but it's something we want to look at further. In terms of the multivariate analyses we did, I think one of the things that I can try to explain it might make some sense in the context of an audio podcast is to talk about some of the odds ratios that we saw here. We wanted to look at these cases in terms of whether the officers lost their jobs or not in the wake of being arrested for DUI. And we saw some interesting things. We saw that the simple odds of an officer losing their job go up by 87% if the officer's DUI incident also was violence-related. So if they somehow got in a fight or something like that, they were 87% more likely to lose their job as a result of the arrest. Uh, similarly, if an officer was acting in their official capacity, in other words, if they were on duty, if they were you know, involved in police business, if they were driving a police car, even if they were off duty, the simple odds of they're losing their job go up by 77%. So I think that's, that's really interesting. Now, some other things we saw, if an officer 
is arrested as a result of a DUI-related traffic accident, the simple odds of the officer losing their job go up by 43%, and the simple odds of losing their job go up by 86% if the officer was involved in a DUI-related traffic accident with a fatality. We also saw, without getting into specific numbers, that the odds of an officer losing their job go up if the officer is employed by an agency that's in a rural area. We also saw that as the agency size go up, if an agency is bigger, the officer is less likely to lose their job in a larger agency. There are a few that don't make a whole lot of sense to me. The odds of an officer losing their job go down if the media reports of their DUI case mention some sort of agency scandal. And I'm not sure what's going on with that one. We also looked at another variable, another dependent variable, which was the criminal case outcome. We're interested in what happened in these cases, what factors are relevant. And we saw that the simple odds of an officer being convicted of a criminal charge after a DUI arrest go down by almost 50% if the officer refused to take a blood alcohol test following their arrest. We also saw that the odds go down by about 65% if an officer was arrested for DUI while they're driving a take-home police car. It was interesting when we looked at the multivariate models, there was a confounding effect that I saw every time we introduced into the models a variable that we have that is the state. In other words, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Nevada, uh, South Dakota, the state that the officer was employed in. So if an officer was employed by an agency located in a specific state, that had an impact on all these models. But in terms of the logistic regression, it had a confounding effect where we weren't able to really interpret the results because, you know, a state doesn't have a value that's different than another state per se. So that led us to look at how we could analyze these cases in a way that might look at the data in a different way than a typical regression model would look at them. And that led us to Steve Brewer and once again looking at classification tree analysis. And Steve, if you could talk to us a little bit about your classification tree analysis results and how you were able to make sense of some of this data with the models that you looked at, both with state as a variable in the model, and then I know you ran some models without the state being in the model. Yes, in order to shed some light on the state variable, we utilize decision tree analysis to allow us to move beyond the one-way interpretation of the data. In order to envision uh, what a decision tree looks like, um, you can think of a simple family tree in which you have the root individual or the individual who created the family at the top. And a decision tree has the most influential variable at the top of the tree. And when we examine the data with state, it actually was the most influential variable to predict not only job loss, but also conviction. And what the decision tree analysis did was to, it actually grouped states together in which it predicted, number one, job loss and conviction by the groupings of the state. For example, certain states had a very low prediction for job loss. For instance, West Virginia, Montana, North Dakota, Wyoming, Delaware, Oregon, Idaho, Hawaii, and Alaska only had a 3.2% chance of job loss versus certain other states had a higher percentage like Georgia, Missouri, South Dakota, New Hampshire, and Vermont, which had a 66.7% chance of job loss. And examining state alone, uh, that does not include the influence of any other variable at that point. 
But again, you know, the decision tree analysis allows us to look at the exact influence of the states individually on job loss and conviction, as opposed to the district regression model, which would identify state as being significant, but it would not tell us which states are significant or the different states and how they have an impact on job loss and or conviction. Yeah, with logistic regression, we just weren't able to make any sense of the results. If I understand correctly, what I looked at with the decision tree analysis, when we added the state where the officer was employed to the models, it became the most influential variable, and it really drove the results in your classification tree analysis, correct? Correct. When we add state, it actually increases our predictive power of the model in general by exactly at least one full point for the under area of the rock curve. You mentioned the dependent variable of job loss. The other dependent variable that we looked at, both in the regression analysis and in the classification tree or decision tree analysis, was conviction, whether the officer was convicted of some criminal charge, whether it be DUI or something, after being arrested for DUI. And I thought this was really interesting, and I'll give two examples of states. And correct me if I'm wrong on this. I believe in South Carolina, there was a very low probability of being convicted if a police officer is arrested for DUI. Is that correct? Right. On the other hand, if an officer is arrested for DUI and they're employed by an agency in the state of Ohio, there's an almost certainty that they will be convicted, almost 100% certainty, well over 90%, correct? Correct. So that's really interesting to me because I cannot explain what it is about those states that would lead us to such polar opposite results in the criminal case disposition. In some states, I mentioned South Carolina, there's a very good chance that an officer arrested for DUI is simply not going to be convicted. I think it's about 22% of the cases or so they were convicted, something like that. We came to a point where we were trying to figure out a way to make sense of the data because if you look at South Carolina, for example, Almost none of the officers, very low percentage of the officers who were arrested for DUI get convicted. On the other hand, if you go next door, if you go just a little bit south to the state of Georgia, almost all of the officers who are arrested for DUI that are employed by a law enforcement agency in Georgia get convicted. So you've got different results in South Carolina and Georgia. And it's interesting because I talked to an old friend of mine who I went to college with who is now an attorney in South Carolina. There's a lot of DUI defense work, and he's also a former police officer. And I asked him the question, what do you think in South Carolina, if a police officer gets arrested for DUI, are they going to get convicted? And he said, nah, not not likely. It's very unlikely that a police officer would get convicted. South Carolina doesn't really take DUI that seriously. And I said, well, what about Georgia? What do you think there? And he says, oh, you're going to see the opposite result there. In Georgia, DUI is a big deal. They take DUI seriously. Politically, it's a big issue. The state legislature takes it as a big issue. You see a different result there. So we've got it's 27.8% of the cases for DUI where an officer is employed by law enforcement agency in South Carolina, they're convicted, whereas we have a 100% conviction if an officer is employed by a law enforcement agency that's located in the state of Georgia. So it's not like we can look at it and say, okay, in the South or in the Deep South, in the Southeast, they're going to treat these things differently. It's different from state to state. And I think we looked at the trees. There was a number of states that showed up grouped together quite often. I think we saw Illinois, New Mexico, and Ohio often grouped together. Is that correct? Yes. So, and, and they I were think, more on the punitive side and more likely to have higher conviction rates and higher rates of job loss. Right. And also we saw in those scenarios, we also saw Michigan and New York, correct? 
Correct. So in those states, I went back and looked, and during our study years, there was something that happened in those states in terms of legislation that went into effect. It's, it's the kind of thing that you'd see more often in a time series analysis where a law goes into effect and you see a change in behavior. So, for example, there are often studies that are done to see the effect of seatbelt laws or helmet laws or the drinking age. And in that type of research, you often see a lag where a law goes into effect and the time series results show us that actually, you know, traffic deaths go down a few months after those laws go into effect. And what we saw here in these cases was an interesting phenomenon where in the decision tree analysis, it seemed that there was an immediate result. In a few instances with the decision tree analysis, we saw that an actual date of arrest made a difference. I think the point to be made in regard to changes in the law and how they impact especially convictions, but also job loss, because there's probably an interaction between those two, is that in some respects, these police DUI cases are like any other DUI case. When there's a change in the law, there's going to be a change in the, in the impact on convictions on any DUI offender. And so in some cases, these trees are pointing out the larger societal context and the impact of that uh, on officers who drive drunk in specific states. And what we saw, though, I'll give you Michigan as an example. In Michigan, a law was passed early in 2008. It wasn't due to go into effect for a year or two later. And we saw that cases where an officer was arrested after a date that was very close to the date that the law was passed, 100% conviction, whereas it had been a much lower conviction level before the date that law was passed. And, you know, law enforcement officers, cops, police officers, they're very well aware of traffic laws and changes in the law. And it seemed to have an effect on plea bargaining, that they were willing to plead guilty to get the case over with quickly before this law went into effect. It may not have even applied to their case because the incident occurred before the law was passed. So you're absolutely right, though, John, that we saw interesting results here that clearly were related to changes in policy, legislative action that was taken in a number of states. And those states that we saw that most obvious were Illinois, Michigan, New York, and even New Mexico, where New Mexico historically has had a reputation as being easy on drunk driving. You know, they've said for years that Gallup, New Mexico, is the drunk driving capital of the world, or at least of the United States. And New Mexico in the mid-2000s, in the last, in the middle of the last decade, really took proactive steps to change that perception, to get tough on DUI. And we saw that result here because we see in New Mexico, police officers who are arrested for DUI are treated harshly. They're convicted and they quite often lose their job as a result. I think you're absolutely correct on that. I think in the big picture, the study brings up some points of discussion going forward. I think the first one, and it might get lost in some of the quantitative analysis that's necessary, that we need to remember that this study sheds light on a problem that, in the empirical literature at least, doesn't exist. That there are no studies that are specifically focused on, on police DUI. Although, you know, 99% of police officers will not drive drunk, we have identified over 700 cases in which police do drive drunk and get arrested. And so one of the purposes of the study that was accomplished was that we've identified a phenomena of concern uh, for society and police, for police organizations that can't be ignored. And I think the methodology has gone a long way to uncover a problem that heretofore has not existed in the empirical literature. Did you just say that 99% of police officers will never drive drunk? 
anecdotally. Well, I, I would take exception to that to the extent that I think that, as you mentioned early on, that drinking is part of the police culture quite often, that there are a lot of police officers, I don't want to say the, you know, the majority, but many police officers have drinking problems, and I think that we just don't know the extent of drunk driving by police officers, but I think it's a problem, and there's no way that we can measure that, enough. though. Yeah, we, do, we don't. We don't know. My point was to suggest that, although, you know, I would assume most police officers do not drive drunk, the fact that no studies specifically address this phenomenon would suggest that it never happens. And, and our data certainly contradict that, that we have identified 700 cases in which it does happen and it needs to be addressed. Okay, I, I think I misunderstood your earlier comment. I think also one of the big points of discussion or one of the things that I think about when looking at the study overall is that, you know, in some ways these cases reflect the larger societal problem of DUI and even how they're disposed. The, the classification trees shed light on some factors that, you know, make these cases in some ways like other DUIs. But in other respects, you know, many of our findings suggest that these cases are unique and that they're uh, egregious and, and that the cases reflect, you know, the worst case of police misconduct and crime and the fact that police themselves are the ones who are driving drunk. So in some ways, these cases are, are different and probably more important to study for criminologists than the run-of-the-mill DUI. And with that, we conclude this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. My name is Phil Stinson, and my thanks to Steve Brewer and John Lederbach for joining me in this discussion on our research into police officers arrested for driving under the influence of alcohol and or drugs. This study is part of a larger research project on police integrity in the United States. The project is supported by award number 2011-IJCX-0024, awarded by the National Institute of Justice, Office of Justice Programs, United States Department of Justice. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Justice. The podcast episode was recorded at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. For more information on our research project, please go to www.bgsu.edu forward slash police integrity lost.